Our scripture reading today is from the book of Revelation and the book of Matthew. And you would turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Sealed up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there will be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And let's turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But this chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of our Lord. Well, this is an exciting chapter. Uh, this doesn't get your juices rolling. I don't know what will. Uh, but, and fortunately, this chapter is also extraordinarily practical. We'll see that, I trust, as we're able to unpack this as best I can. Uh, but just before we jump into that, a quick reminder that we, for those of you who didn't, uh, didn't see it on the connection or don't have that, we are having a short meeting immediately after the service today uh, for the, uh, the pastoral search committee and the elders to kind of tell you our thinking and why we didn't extend a call either to David or to Brandon and uh, uh, see if there's any things that we can answer there and be helpful for you in putting those things to rest as we start up the process again and uh, move ahead as best we can. Uh, by all accounts, uh, chapters 8 and 9 uh, in the Revelation have been pretty harrowing. I think it was uh, Ron Matthew who came to me after the end of chapter 9 and said, man, you know, there's just nothing but bad news here. This is all ugly. And uh, that's pretty much the way it reads. Those two chapters are full of really difficult things. Uh, chapter 8 begins with the opening of the seventh seal, and I'm trying to give you some sort of a representation here, uh, of the scroll. And the scroll, if you will recall, was introduced in chapter 5. And that scroll contains the, the program, the whole program of God's redemptive plan right up to the very end of this present existence. And that in two main things, uh, both God's final judgment on all sin, both angelic and human, and the fulfillment of all God's promised blessings to those who are reconciled to him in Christ by means of faith in Jesus' atoning substitutionary death on the cross. So as this is all unfolding, we're seeing this succession of the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls. And so that first one came in. Let me come back here if I can. All of a sudden, we're, I think we're frozen. We might be John. I don't know what's happened here. But um, anyway, um, that, that's what you have. And then um, as each seal, well, I didn't want to move ahead yet, but that's okay. Uh, it'll sit there. And then I can just say change when I want the next one. So hold on. As each seal was opened, we saw more and more of what was um, to unfold in bringing all of these, these two main ends to their end. Now, as we enter into chapter 10, we encounter something of the structure of the book that we've seen before. It's a pattern that's helpful in unpacking this chapter, which seems to be rather puzzling. This particular vision that we see of this angel can be a little, a little odd. So let me go back and do a little uh, recollection for you. You all remember that chapter 6 
contained the opening of the seven seals. And then chapter 7 introduced some sort of a break in the action before the seventh seal is opened. So there's, there's this br- opening of the seals. You get to the sixth seal, it gets opened, and then there's a pause. Not a pause in the actual action, but something for us to pick up on. And this break gives the reader a sort of a breather at that point. It brings a shift of perspective. The six seals reveal that there's going to be all this disruption on the earth and uh, the suffering of all kinds that, as God brings his plan to completion. And then chapter 7 takes us into the heavenlies. You'll remember that, the sealing of the 144,000, where we're, we're hearing about all this difficulty, but then we realize in it, God intends to protect his own people. Even while judgments are being poured out, believers are being safely brought through. And so it lets you sigh a giant sigh of relief. And now this pattern repeats itself at the opening of the seventh seal. Um, Wow, I'm back on. Um, And so uh, chapters 8 and 9 present an extended period and series of announced warnings about these coming judgments. Uh, one after another as they expand on the nature of those coming judgments, including uh, an introduction of demonic deception, which we spent a lot of time unpacking on a massive scale and how that afflicts mankind. And so 8 and 9 are bleak, uh, frightful. They are disturbing chapters, to say the least. Huge numbers of humanity being tormented and dying along with natural disasters ramping up and, and all of this demonic affliction. And just, just as it seems we've hit our limit for taking the horror of it all in, the seventh trumpet finally sounds and we get another much needed break. Another chance to catch our breath and to reflect on what we've seen and to re- re- recollect some of our thoughts, some uh, advance. Thank you. Uh, advance once more. Advance once more. And again, there we are. So there's, there's the pattern. In chapter 7, the sealing of the 144,000 gives you a little bit of a breather after the opening of the first six seals. And then in chapter 10, you get this vision of the angel and the little scroll And that gives you a bit of a breather after the fifth and sixth trumpets. So uh, chapters 8 and 9, which are so difficult. So chapter 10, like 7, shifts the scene somewhat. And it's to give in comfort and to give instruction uh, to God's people so that we're not overwhelmed by the content of the previous two chapters. And that's why I say it proves to be both instructive and useful and clarifying. It It restores some much-needed perspective at a critical point in reading. So sweetly and wonderfully, as God speaks to us here in this portion, we're taken to what could be, in terms of the message alone, uh, a standalone chapter, but one that is also filling a major role in the unfolding of the whole narrative. And we'll come back. We'll, We'll see how that works. In fact, the seventh and the last trumpet won't be blown until the middle of chapter 11. So while we've got this pause, we want to take a minute to capitalize on the break God gives and see what he's prepared. We want to soak in some of the good news 
that comes along with the bad news we've been steeped in. And this all comes to us by way of a vision of another, um, of another mighty angel. Now that God sends. Now, now watch the interesting series of things that unfold in this passage. So let's go back to chapter 10 verses 1 and verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel, different than one he had seen previously, coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Well, that's an odd image, to say the least. What does it mean? Well, as God once again sends a mighty angel, as it says here, this is meant to be a picture. And as a picture, it's going to represent some things and and declare some things. I want to note four things in this one verse that John is kind of helping us fix our attention on. First, this angel that comes down is wrapped in a cloud. Uh, Secondly, he has a rainbow over his head. Third, his face was like the sun. And then fourth, his legs were like pillars of fire. That's a unique sight, to say the least. This is a huge, massive, mighty angel, as he says. And what, just what it all means seems to be wrapped up in a series of couplets. And I'm going to come back to them later. But now I just want to work through the passage and make these observations about the verses. And you're going to see this interesting structure that emerges, four points in each of these. And, and then we'll go back and we'll try and make this practical to where we, we go. Second then, in verse 2, he, this angel had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Four more features to take a quick look at. First, there's a little scroll that's open in his hand. That's contrasted to the big scroll that was sealed in the hand of God. Remember back in earlier in the book where where Jesus had to come as the lamb and open that scroll? This one's open already. Secondly, this is in the angel's hand. It's in his hand, not in God's hand. So something else is going on here. Third, he has his right foot on the sea. That's interesting in itself. And he has his left foot on the land. Now all of these have some accrued meaning to it all as we put it together. But let's just work through the passage, get these things in our heads, and then we'll come back and and try and tie it all together. Then in verses 3 and 4, he called out with a loud voice. This angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. We don't know what those are other than thunderous sound, right? And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... John says, but I heard a voice from heaven. And the voice said, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Four more things, all right? So it's interesting the way this pattern repeats. So the first thing is his voice was, um, he called out with a loud voice. What he said, we don't know. It isn't recorded for us and speculation would be fruitless. Wouldn't help us anyway. Secondly, he cried out like a lion, a lion roaring. Um, this is opposed to the vision we saw of God earlier, where when he cried out or when he spoke, it was like many waters rushing. So this is loud, 
It's pervasive, but it's not quite the same and not quite as massive as God himself speaking back in chapter 1. And upon his crying, seven thunders sounded. And then we don't know, as I said, what they said. In fact, contrary to how John was told earlier to write down what God said at the beginning of the book, uh, now he's forbidden from doing that. And so he's told, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Again, interesting four things to observe as you walk through it. That takes you to verses 5 and 7, through 7. And so the angel who I saw, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. Older translations, some say time will be no more, but that's really not what's said there. The newer translations correct that well. There will be no more delay. It isn't that time ceases to exist, and we'll come back to that in a second. But that in the days of the trumpet, sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. What God is unfolding, uh, the fullness of the end of times, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So, four things. Again, let's just take a quick look. The angel lifted his right hand to heaven and swore. He doesn't speak as God. He speaks on behalf of God. So he lifts his hand to heaven and swears to God, the one who lives forever and ever. Secondly, he swore that there would be no more delay, that God has been warning and warning and warning and warning, and there will come a point in time when God doesn't warn anymore, but everything finally comes to completion. And then he says that it is in the days of the seventh trumpet that the mystery of God would be fulfilled. You remember all along I've mentioned that the trumpets are a repeated warning. It's a, it's a time. And here's where we draw that idea. It's in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. It's not a one-time event. It's an era. There's a period of time when this seventh trumpet blast, this last set of warnings comes out. And how long that is, how long or how short it is, we aren't told in the text. We just know that it is in the days of that. And then, lastly, John links this to the announcements to the other prophecies as their fulfillment. So, um, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, finally, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So John is seeing all this in line with prophecy that has come before, especially as we've seen in the earlier parts of the book, tied together with Daniel, tied together with Joel, tied together with Ezekiel, tied together with other passages of Old Testament scripture. And he's saying all this is tied together. This isn't something that's just coming out of the blue. We're just getting more and more understanding of it as scripture unfolds. And then 8 through 11. And then the voice that I heard from heaven, so God ostensibly spoke to me again, saying, Now go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So what do we get then? We get four more things. 
to take a look at. Isn't that fun? He's repeated this all the way through. And this is helpful because you understand that this isn't just willy-nilly, but there's real structure here. And that structure is to help us understand how to interpret what's going on. So the first thing is that God instructs him to go and take the scroll. The second thing you want to notice is that God tells him to take and eat the scroll. You can't, and this is a wonderful, this is a side lesson. This isn't actually in my notes. You cannot simply read the word of God. You have to take it in. You have to assimilate it. If it isn't taken in, if it isn't drawn into the innermost being, it does nothing. It has to truly be given its opportunity to work in us. So God instructs him, you need to eat it. And God tells John that when he does that, it's going to be sweet into the taste, but it's going to be bitter in his stomach. Third, John eats the scroll and it is sweet and it makes his stomach bitter. Those things come to pass. And then lastly, John is told that his ministry isn't over. Even though he might think that as an old man in his 90s, in exile on the island of Patmos, God says, your time isn't done. I've got more going on. This is so important for those who, as they see themselves aging, begin to think, can God use me? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, well, now, what in the world are we supposed to do with all of this? All right, we've got this amazing vision and I've avoided using graphics on the vision because I don't want us to go there. That's, that's not the idea. It's what's being symbolized. And, and what can we reasonably extract from it that makes sense? And there's, there's two main things that are helpful here. First is that structure that this is a, a break or a breather from all the bad news. And secondly, that, that in the repetition that goes on here, there is a, a duality that keeps being repeated over and over and over. So you really get the message. So when it all comes down to it, you saw that first slide we started with. There's good news and there's bad news. And this is really important to take in well. And we'll, we'll show you why in just a second. The key to that question, I mean, I don't know about you, but you read this the first time through and that's, that's my immediate intellectual response. Huh? Um, uh, but again, the key is to these two patterns. The pattern with, the, with chapter 7 and then the pattern within the vision itself. Now, just as um, uh, in normal parlance, we've all heard the proverb, one man's trash is another man's treasure, so in Scripture often, one man's curse is another man's blessing. The two tend to go hand in hand. That, again, is part of the key to the pattern that gets repeated so many times. So just as the chapter follows the pattern we saw, so this chapter has its own repeated image, an image of both blessing and cursing at the same time, that those aren't to be divorced from one another. And this is not new in Scripture. This is a similar duality to the promise of Jesus' ministry who John the baptizer said, which we saw in Matthew, we're going to come back to, would both bless and judge in his blowing and separating the chaff from the grain or the wheat. Let me go back to Matthew 6 and establish that for you, or Matthew 3 and establish that for you again. Let's read this. In those days, the days of John the Baptist, when he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and you would think, oh, the kingdom of heaven is hand, all good news. Maybe not. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now, John, he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, identifying with Isaiah from the old, or with uh, Elijah in the Old Testament. Uh, Brian's been bringing that out in our Sunday school class in these last few weeks. And his food was locusts and wild honey, meaning he was not part of society's hoi polloi. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Interesting. The only way to get baptized is first to confess that you're a sinner. Uh, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, uh, not very politically correct at this moment, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now notice, he just announced the kingdom is at hand, and now he equates that with the fact that there's wrath to come. So bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Some of you younger ones here need to hear that. Don't say, well, my mom and dad serve Christ. That's not sufficient. Where are you in relationship to Christ? So don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I've got a praying mom and dad. That is a blessing of untold value. But that doesn't save you. Trust in Christ does. I'm able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. There's an interesting tie into that verse in a thing that happens in the Old Testament in Joshua, but we can't go back and do it right now. Even now... The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Is this the kingdom coming? Yes, it is. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Yowza. So I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me, he's mightier than I am. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? Because some people have said, oh, that's, isn't that great? The Christians will have a baptism of the Spirit and fire. No, that's not. He explains what he means by the fire part in the next verse. It's not what we might think. What about the fire? His winnowing fork. This is the one who's to come, Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire interesting isn't it matter of fact the picture is just this hard to find picture of people winnowing with their winnowing forks anymore but it does happen and what happens in this is very simple in, in that day the way that they prepared their, their grain, the wheat especially, is they would put it out in this big area and they would beat it down, roll rocks over it, do all kinds of things to kind of crush it. And then they'd come along with these pitchforks 
as the wind blew, and they'd throw the wheat up in the air. And what didn't have any substance to it, any weight, the chaff, just the husks, the outside stuff, the wind would blow up against a wall. But that which was weighty and substantive would fall to the floor. And they would do that and do that and do that until all the chaff was blown over one side and the weighty stuff that had substance was down on the floor. And then they would bind up that wheat and they'd use that to process. But they would take all the stuff that blew against the wall and they'd gather it up and burn it. That's the picture, John, is relating about what Jesus will do when he comes. Jesus is the one who will one day come and separate the wheat from the chaff, the true believers from those who are merely religionists. And when he sends the Spirit to blow at Pentecost, he will begin the process of removing that which has no weight and substance from that which does, and then bind it up and burn it. In other words, he will bless believers with the pouring out of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit, But that same blessing will also serve as part of the judgment of unbelievers. See the dual concept. The two occur simultaneously through the singular action of the Spirit. Let's go back to Revelation 10. There is great judgment being poured out on sin and sinners, especially as we saw in chapters 8 and 9. But there's also blessing and faithfulness to be seen for those who are righteous with the righteousness of Christ. So let's, again, go back to that text itself and see that demonstrated. And I'm only going to point out six instances instead of going through this in in massive detail. I want to just show you six select portions in this, but we could tease out more. And, And it helps us come to grips with how God is ministering to his people through this 10th chapter, this uh, in, in these 11 verses, in helping us prepare for what may be some very difficult days ahead in the church. So let me go back to verse 1. So then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. So the angel is sent from heaven, And he's wrapped in a cloud. What does that mean? Well, this is a motif that's very common in Scripture and comes to us, especially from the Old Testament, where clouds are almost always a picture of judgment in some way. Sometimes it's it's also a blessing when it brings just rain, but often it's more than that. Let me give you just three examples. You can go back and find these on your own. Isaiah 19.1. This is when Isaiah, through the Spirit of God, is pronouncing judgment on Egypt. And he says, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. You see this coming on the cloud is a a judgment thing. When Jesus prophesies that one day he will come on the clouds, he'll come in judgment. Go to Ezekiel 30, chapter chapter 30, verse 3. For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, and it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Or Joel 2, we're all familiar with this. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, meaning in Jerusalem. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? Why? 
For the day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will there be again after them through the years of all generations. But what happens after the clouds dissipate? Rainbows. Rainbows. This is not a doctored picture. This is an actual one. This is, oh, you can't see it well, can you? This is a tornado funnel. This is a rainbow occurring at one and the same time. It's exactly what's happening here. That's the picture of this angel descending wrapped in a cloud, but also with a rainbow over his head. Is that helpful? Thank you. Yeah, you can leave it that way too. I like it a little darker. I can nap. Um, <laughs> At the very time of God's judgment will also appear the sign of his loving and unbreakable covenant with his people. So we, as we see God's wrath being poured out on sin, as we go grow closer to the end days, I don't know how close the final days are. We're 2,000 years closer than we were when Jesus was here. But as we go closer to that, we remember that, yes, judgment's coming, but with that, God's covenant promise is never broken. And they always work together. And we will remain as his people, even in the midst of pouring out. Blessing and cursing at one and the same time. Judgment and blessing end up being bound up together. Well, and then we see something of this same parallelism again in verse 1. When he says, again, I saw the mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. His face is like the sun. It's radiant. There is light. And at the same time, there is the fire of judgment. You see, one and the same thing. Here's this one vision saying, you need to keep these two concepts parallel in your thinking. We'll come back to why that's so important again in just a few minutes. And then two, in verse two, he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Remember, as we talked in the earlier chapters, how visions of of the sea in the Old Testament especially are almost always indications of that which is mysterious and dangerous and unstable. In God's universe, as he proclaims both his judgment and his blessing, he stands on equal footing on that which is mysterious and unstable and dangerous, as well as that which is solid and foundational. He's Lord over both. And so we trust him with the mysterious. We trust him with what we can't figure out. We trust him with what doesn't seem stable to our eyes and to our experience, because he is Lord over both. The angel steps on both and there's both revelation and mystery and not everything is fully revealed to us right now. But God is Lord over both. Over the solid and the concrete and over that which is really makes us tremble and doubt. It's a wonderful representation of why we can trust him in those dark days. In our own personal dark days. When we say about our personal circumstances... Lord, what are you doing to me? 
What's going on in my life? I don't understand this new course that my life has taken. I don't understand how to unpack these things that, that seem unfathomable and, and painful and difficult to process. And he says, yes, I stand on that as much as I stand on everything that's sure and concrete and clear. I may not know. As the old hymn writer said, I don't, I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring sorrow. It may bring joy. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. I can trust him. A fourth picture that's given to us here that's so useful that when the seven thunders sounded and I was about to write, I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. The angel cries out and it's, it's loud like the roar of a lion. But when the seven thunders roar, their message is not to be written down. And so we're given a graphic representation of how God speaks and that not everything is equally revealed and accessible to us yet. So when you go through scripture, especially in this book that is so difficult, this is a wonderful help for interpreters as they're working through the rest of the book of, of, of the Revelation. It's a warning not to overinterpret the prophecies. Not to go so far that you nail down every detail in a way that, that somehow you've got every little bit of the scheme worked out. No, we don't. Even though God has spoken, even though he's said it, he hasn't yet revealed it all to us. And that's okay. As one wag said years ago, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that are problematic. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand. That's where I've got to deal with my sin, with what God has said clearly. And yet it's fascinating how we will be drawn to parts of Scripture that are more obscure and more difficult rather than dealing with the parts that are right up front and easy to digest. And so there's plenty that he has said, but we don't know about it yet. We know that he's spoken. We know that he's said. And yet some of it's going to have to be unpacked in days ahead. A fifth thing to notice is in those verses 5 through 7 where the angel standing on the sea raised up his hand and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and all that's in it and, and that in the days of the seventh trumpet, as I mentioned before, it's not an event but an era. And how long or how short, we don't know. And we don't have to know. We don't have to nail that down. So will the tribulation be three and a half years? Will it be seven years? Will people get raptured halfway through at the end before? Who knows? Some people are pretty sure they do. And we've seen them drop off one by one by one. It's not the issue. Some of those things are part of the thunders that are sealed up. How long or how short will this era be? But this we're given hope of. That in the picture of a sworn promise and the insight of a period which will bring all of this to pass. The angel has sworn before God and said to us, there'll be no more delay. God's timetable is on on track. He'll bring it to pass at the right time in the right way. You can trust him. And then lastly, in verses 8 through 10, that this, ver- that this voice told him to go and take the scroll and to eat it, and it'll be sweet in his mouth, but it'll be bitter um, in his stomach. And here's something that's always true for us, that God's word is both sweet to us in its gospel blessing, 
But it also teaches us the bitterness of sin and of judgment. And those two can never be separated. They must be taken together. And that duality isn't contradictory. It's to be held in tension by believers right up until the end. And it keeps us both from being overwhelmed in the hard times and overconfident in the good times. But always looking to him. That duality gets expressed again in lots of places in scripture. Romans 11.22, behold the kindness and the severity of the Lord. But I'll tell you why this is so important and for us as believers to really grasp this is because this is a view of God and the world that the world can't comprehend. It rejects. In fact, I think there's many Christians who reject it. So God must either be all loving in many people's minds and everything must be nice and good and sweet and tidy Or for other people, he appears harsh and cruel and to be hated or disregarded. But of course, there's two things there. God is holy and loving and good. And he's also just and faithful and cannot ignore sin. So it's the same God who judges sin, who also provides his son as the ransom for our souls in his death on Calvary. It's the same God. And the demands of the gospel of his grace, he says, must be preached to everybody. It's central to the actual concept of the gospel itself. And this is what is often missing in our generation. As Paul says in Romans 1, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But he's still articulating this gospel that he's not ashamed of. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, the gospel isn't good news in any sense unless there's bad news that makes the gospel the good news in contrast. But how often the only thing we want to share in the gospel is the good news. And don't realize that there's two aspects. The bad news is humanity is under God's curse and has been ever since our race rebelled together in Adam against God's absolute rights over us as made in his image. A curse that will that will end in final and eternal judgment. Now, out of the many places where we could go and show you that this is the gospel parallel that must go on in our preaching and teaching today, I'm grateful that there are people who preach the love and the compassion and the goodness of God. But love and compassion and goodness, unless it's dealing with Sin and brokenness and rebellion isn't the gospel. It's just, wouldn't you like a nice Santa Claus type of God? It's not the gospel. Nor is the gospel simple hellfire and damnation. Because if we preach the judgment of God, we must also preach 
the goodness and the forgiveness and the grace of God. And any time you tear those two apart, you come away with a mutilated gospel. A gospel either of all condemnation or a gospel of God's just your buddy and wants to rub your head and make you happy. And that isn't the gospel. Neither side is the gospel. Together it's the gospel. And the repeated duality, the repetition in this chapter 10 reminds believers, look, there's both. I cannot bring the finality of my kingdom to bear without judging sin. But in that will be the absolute blessing and carrying out of all that I've promised to my my loved ones. And these two are clasped together. That's why just assuming that when God does the one, the others will be absent is probably not not a, a tenable position. One of the scariest portions we're going to read, we'll read a little later in the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, I'm not going to take you there right now. Oh, no, it's chapter 14. I'll take you there. Um, It's not in my notes, but it it goes with where we are. Chapter 14, uh, picking up in verse 9. This is a stunning picture. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, we can't give you the full context here. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger. And watch what happens in this next verse. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Where? In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What will hell be for the unbeliever? The presence of the holy angels and the Lamb but unredeemed. Stunning. Frightful. That which will be the ultimate blessing for the believer will be the ultimate ruin of those who reject him. It's an amazing picture. And when we lose sight of of how God has built this duality into things, we We make a hash of scripture and and heap things up on different sides that aren't opposed to each other. But again, let me show you this in two just stunning places in scripture where I love the way this this comes together. And, And what you're getting in chapter 10 is a visual representation of what's been preached throughout the scripture in various places. And I'm going to give you two, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. But we could have chosen dozens where this happens. And the first is in Isaiah chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the bad news. That is bad news. That's the first part of the verse. What's the second part of the verse? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see the two. They're just perfectly yoked together. You you don't have the gospel without both. That there is this this reality that we have strayed from him and and said, we don't want your lordship over our lives. We want to rule ourselves. We want to determine what's right and what's wrong for us. We want to say, I have a right to say everything over my own life is my personal master. And he says, no, no, that's the problem. 
That's the problem. But the solution is the substitutionary death of Jesus. But let me take you to one place in the New Testament where it happens in reverse order, but the same duality is brought to light. And again, that's what chapter 10 is doing. It's just bringing this principle out for us so that we will take comfort in it and rest in it and realize the truth of it and not walk in darkness as we see God's wrath poured out and, and what that looks like. It's in John 3. John 3, 36a. Whoever believes in the Son has... E- or 36b, that should... Or, no, 36a. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That is good news. But take the second half of the verse. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see this? This is how Scripture presents the gospel over and over and over and brings it to us in this stark clarity. And it's why today... We call everyone in the sound of our voice to acknowledge the bad news of our sin and condemnation that we might also know the reality, in all reality, the really good news. Jesus died for sinners and forgives all those who come to him by faith. But there will be a coming judgment. Believers need not fear the judgment because we're found in Christ. So he says, I won't forget my covenant even when I come in clouds of wrath. I won't forget my mercy even while I'm judging the world. Or as we saw in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were being delivered from Egypt, I'll keep them safe in their house if the blood is on the doorpost on the lintels, even while the death angel comes through and carries out judgment on the firstborn of all of Egypt. Two happen in the same place at the same time. It's astounding. So if you're a believer here today, the bad news I hope you've already reckoned with, that you were a sinner lost in your rebellion and and you needed to be reconciled to him so that you didn't bear the wrath so that you might know that he bore your wrath on Calvary. And if you're not a believer today, I'm calling to you and saying these two things are true. Own your sin and the fullness of your wretchedness so that you might know the fullness of his forgiveness and grace. Now let me take that a step further because I know this gets uncomfortable with some people. That's okay. That's what you pay me for. Make you a little uncomfortable. The joy of your salvation is experienced in direct ratio to your understanding of how much you deserved wrath. If you make light of your sin, you will make light of his salvation. If you make much of your sin, not because you want to glorify it, but because you want to identify the fullness of its wretchedness, then you'll know what forgiveness is all about. So the more you want to be self-affirming and self-justifying, the less you can experience the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Now, I know people say, hey, we don't want to hear about our sinfulness. We're already in Christ. I'm sorry. You have to have the two together. You can't have one without the other. You can't have black without white. If you want clarity, the Christian is the only one 
who has the privilege of being able to stare into the abyss of our lostness without fear, but with joy and forgiveness and assurance. And the reason why the world won't look at its sinfulness is because it has no assurance in Christ. The believer is the only one who can really plumb the depths of his own sin and say, wow, is that bad? Isn't Christ exceedingly wonderful? But even as a believer, if you want to keep running from your own sinfulness, just know that you will shortchange yourself on the knowledge of his goodness and grace. And you can't give lip service to it. You can't just say, oh, yeah, I know I'm bad. I'm terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So is everybody else. No, that isn't it. There are times of brokenness that then accompany those times of elevation and soaring wonder and joy. Both of them have to come together in the believer's life in the most wonderful way. And in Christ, we can safely do that and wonderfully be lifted up and thrill to his goodness and grace. Father, I thank you for your word. (coughs) I thank you for your loving kindness and faithfulness. I thank you that in, in holiness... And justice, you must deal perfectly with sin. And I thank you that for everyone here today who puts their faith in Christ, your wrath has already been poured out on him so that they do not have to endure it in the final days. But if there's any here today, Father, who don't know you, who haven't bowed the knee to Christ, who haven't come to this place by your Spirit, Will you make them miserable in their sin so that they can know the comfort and the joy of your saving grace? Don't let them go away indifferent. But move in our hearts and minds and help us to keep this tension that we might glory in the cross and not in ourselves in any way, shape, or form. Save those who are outside of the cross today. Make them your children. Cause them to be born again, we pray in Jesus' name.